Welcome to season five of Penn South Africa's podcast, The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. I'm your host, Nadia Davids, and I'm the current president of Penn South Africa. Every year on the 15th of November, Penn centers throughout the world mark the day of the imprisoned writer. And at each event, there's an unoccupied chair. This chair symbolizes those who cannot be with us because they have been jailed for their writings, and it is from this symbol that our podcast takes its name. Each of our episodes is dedicated to a writer in prison or a writer who has been subject to some form of abuse by the state. And at the end of each episode, our guests pay them tribute, offering them a message of solidarity and thanks, sometimes in the form of a poem or a quote. In this episode, we stand in solidarity with Perhat Tursan, a celebrated Uyghur poet and writer who was forcibly disappeared in Xinjiang in 2018. It is thought that Tursan was initially detained in the Xinjiang re-education camps, but in 2020, reports emerged that he had been sentenced to 16 years imprisonment. His current whereabouts and health remain unknown. Tursan was born in Atush in 1969 in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region in China. He worked as a researcher for the Xinjiang People's Art Center and is the author of 100 Love Lyrics and the books The Art of Suicide and Messiah Desert. Columbia University Press has just published Terzan's The Backstreets, a novel from Xinjiang translated into English by Darren Byler and also by an anonymous co-translator who disappeared in 2017, who is also presumed to be in the re-education camp system in northwest China. Penn South Africa joins Uyghur Penn, Penn International and other centers around the world in calling on Chinese authorities to free Perhat Tursan. You can read more about the intricacies of his case and find links to his work in the show notes. In the sixth episode of season five, Penn South Africa board member Bonkani Kona chairs a scintillating and dynamic conversation with Claire Schwartz and Matthew Wilhelm Solomon. They address issues of state violence and complicity, the role of the law, public housing and the meaning of home, think through stories of tenderness and pain, and imagine new ways of living alongside one another. Bungani Kona is a writer, editor, and lecturer in the Department of History at the University of the Western Cape. His work has appeared in a variety of places, including Chimarenga, Safe House, Explorations in Creative Nonfiction, and BBC Radio 4. He was shortlisted for the Kane Prize for African Rising in 2016 and edited Our Ghosts Were Once People, published in 2021. It would be impossible to speak about the blinded city without talking about xenophobia and migration, which is a big part of this book. And I'm going to use one of Claire's lines as a kind of jumping off point. Do you believe in the nation? Have you ever loved an alien? Who represents you in what state? Claire Schwartz is the author of the poetry collection Civil Service, published by Grey Wolf Press and the culture editor of Jewish Currents. She is the winner of the Weising Award in Poetry and her writing has appeared in Granta, The Nation, Virginia Corsity Review and elsewhere. The other thing I wanted to think about is the ways that we lock ourselves into these forms so that even the opposition between private property and public housing is already a false one because these are actually mutually constituted. That private property means that some people will be locked out. 
and that locking ourselves in is already a form of dispossession, even if we understand it to be a form of possession. Matthew Wilhelm Solomon has worked as a lecturer and researcher at Wits University over the past decade and is presently a senior rising fellow at Wits Anthropology and a visiting researcher at the African Center for Migration and Society. A trained journalist, he holds a doctorate from the University of Oxford, The Blinded City, 10 years in inner city Johannesburg, is his first sole authored book. You know, in South Africa, we have these big narratives of, you know, politics and the law and so on, but one can't understand also the meanings and also the, the continuation of apartheid-era violence without really understanding the intimacy of those lives which are disrupted. Thank you so much for joining us in this conversation. Welcome to the sixth episode of Season 5 of Penn South Africa's The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. I'm Bongani Kona, and I'm honored to be talking with Claire Schwartz and Matthew Wilhelm Solomon. I'm in Cape Town. Matthew's joining us from Johannesburg, and Claire's in New York. We're recording this remotely, so please note that you might also hear some background sounds during our conversation. Both your recently published books, Civil Service and The Blinded City, 10 Years in Inner City, Johannesburg, feel urgent and necessary. And so just to say again, I'm deeply honored to be in conversation with you both. Welcome, Claire, and welcome, Matthew. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks, Mungani. In preparation for our conversation today, Claire, alongside Civil Service, I also read some of your reviews and essays in Jewish Currents, a really important social justice space where you work as an editor and hope you'll be able to speak to us about that. But I wanted to ask you first about your essay in Electric Lit, which details part of your education as a poet. So forgive me, this is a very long question. I also have a long one for you, Matthew. <laughs> I'd like to invite you to talk to us in depth about your education as a poet and in particular this line that really struck me. The capacity for beauty is not the capacity for good. In a way, it echoes a line by Soma Sharif, who you wrote about recently earlier this month, in which Sharif's intent is to write poems that make it impossible to applaud afterward. So I just wanted to ask you about your relationship also to that declaration. Thank you for that question and, and for the invitation to return to that essay, which is several years old at this point. And I've been thinking about how my thinking has changed since then. You asked about my education as a poet. And that essay orbits the only kind of official poetry workshop that I've ever taken. And in so many ways, I think that's not really where my education as a poet has happened. But it's it's a kind of interesting space to think about the pedagogy of poetry as it takes shape inside institutions. But I think poetry happens in the living. And in so many ways, my education as a poet is just the practice of living and the practice of people who are trying to make an otherwise. I, I think my education as a poet has happened first and foremost in abolitionist spaces and anti-carceral spaces in spaces where language is being turned over as a form of necessity to make a different kind of living. The capacity for beauty is not the capacity for good. The writer Sadia Hartman talks about beauty as making possibility in the space of enclosure. And I think that can be a really radical thing as well as a really dangerous thing. 
because beauty can hold us in spaces where we may not want to be held or can keep us tethered to forms that we may not want to exist inside. So I think there are ways that it can be a needful practice making beauty so that we can find each other, so that we can live inside spaces that we may not have chosen for ourselves and toward an otherwise. But I think there's also danger there in the ways that there's danger in all forms of resilience, that not everything should be open to reform. Some things need to be shut down so that other things can can come up. So holding all of those questions about the kind of allure of language and the allure of beautiful language when, when making poems feels important to my practice. Also, just your own relation to that line about to write poems that make it impossible to applaud afterwards. Yeah. I mean, Soma Sharif is someone who I really turn to to think about the kind of double-edgedness of acclaim. You know, the ways that acclaim can help work travel so that we can find each other, so that we can find each other in a space of readership and in a space of writing alongside feels like such a, a space of possibility. But there's also a way that, like beauty, it can dull the critical capacity for engagement. So, you know, I think there, there's kind of a question about the work itself. And then there's a question about the way that the work moves around the world. And I think that's something that Sharif is really attentive to, that you can write a poem condemning the state in the most forceful language, and then you can read it in an inauguration for a president, and it comes to mean something else. You know, there's a way that the state and forms of state violence are constantly reconstituting themselves, which includes taking in dissent, especially like the cultural production of dissent, and taking it in as a kind of complicated thought that then authorizes the state's expansion. So just holding all of those questions and the necessity of staying alive to them in the work feels important to me. Thank you so much. And I think that leads in quite nicely to Matthew. I think what Claire just said about forms of state violence reconstituting themselves. And you have this phrase in The Blinded City about the odd lines of continuity between the apartheid and post-apartheid eras. And you're looking at this in the struggles for housing. And The Blinded City itself is the culmination of a 10-year immersion in these struggles but maybe as an entryway into this kind of large and very complicated conversation, may I ask you to speak to us about Irene Krutbom from Cape Town, a totemic figure in this struggle, and also how language is also integral to all of this. And then finally talk to us about how the book began. So I think that the Irene Krutbom case is probably the single most important case in post-apartheid constitutional housing jurisprudence. It's a case from 2000 and named after Irene Krutboom, who was a housing activist in Wallerstein in the Western Cape. And the judgment was authored by the blind judge and also anti-apartheid activist Zach Jacob. And it established the principle that no one who is evicted should be rendered homeless and that the state was obliged to establish an emergency housing scheme for those that were rendered homeless through eviction, as Krutboom and her community in Wallerstein were. 
But in the course of the research, and although my research didn't focus on the Western Cape, I tried to follow up the story of Grootboom and, and what her life story was. And what I came to realize is that very little of her life was documented. Although the name is omnipresent, the actual life story is erased. It's just clippets of her life, and, and I managed to contact neighbors and so on for, for a longer piece that I wrote for the, the online site, New Frame. Not all of it is in the book. But it, it made me realize that how much of the stories of the activists, but particularly women in these stories, was being erased. And so, for instance, the story of Nomsel and Ladler, which runs throughout the book in a later case, uh, Blue Moonlight, which opens the blinded city, which, which really establishes, builds on Krutboom in establishing the principle that the municipality of Johannesburg was obliged to provide temporary emergency accommodation, even if their victors were private developers. And that case sets the course for the book. It was very important to me to tell the story through those involved. And for instance, Nomsel and Ladler later had a later case named after her called Ladler. And so part of the documentation of the book is, is while it deals with these major elements of, of post-apartheid jurisprudence, is to really tell the stories through, through the lives and, and the way in which law comes to live and the stories implied, and particularly amongst communities of unlawful occupations. And I think this is where it connects to what Claire was saying, who are continually subject to state violence, to police violence, also to violence by the private sector, and to look at you know, evictions and so on, and to really interrogate, well, what does this violence mean? How does it enter into the, the lived worlds of spaces which are highly criminalized? What are the domains of intimacy, of, of beauty, of, of care, which are destroyed or attacked through, through the constant presence of both state and private sector violence? Because I, I don't think more generally you can understand, you know, in South Africa we have these big narratives of, you know, of politics and the law and so on, but one can't understand also the meanings and also the, the continuation of apartheid era violence without really understanding the intimacy of those lives which are disrupted. Uh, thank you, Matthew. And then could you just tell us about, because this is a, the Blinded Cities, a 10-year project, and just how the book began, what sparked it? So the book began with actually a newspaper article I was writing on a Doctors Without Borders program who found that in inner city Johannesburg, estimated that there were 50 to 60,000 people living in conditions worse than international standards for refugee camps. And I visited one of these buildings, the so-called dark building or bad building, so-called hijack building, and the levels of dereliction were very extreme, no light, no electricity. Um, they were often considered spaces where undocumented migrants or asylum seekers were living, but in fact this building was a mixture between South Africans and and foreign nationals. And, and it was really five minutes from my family home. And the scale of dereliction in Africa's wealthiest city was really shocking to me, but it also, in a sense, drew me in. And from the outset, I was conscious of the dangers of a white writer entering spaces known as dark buildings. And that's the, the term people in them, but also on the streets use. But also, having grown up and lived in Johannesburg and 
with a lot of love for the city, it, it seemed that that story of the city was not being written, that it was being erased with the kind of celebration of urban renewal and so on at the time. And it seemed that these spaces, which were often criminalized, seen just targeted by policing or immigration raids were in fact really rich constellations of both local and regional histories. And so the kind of project of the book was was to trace those histories, to trace the intersections of these regional histories of migration with the post-apartheid history of Johannesburg and the ways in which these buildings came to exist, which were often you know, formerly rental buildings that went into decline, old warehouses which were inhabited, former industrial spaces. And so within these spaces are both the stories of the city, but I think also much wider history, which, which seemed to me very important to be told and which was being erased in a kind of mainstream media narrative about so-called hijacked buildings and also in, in a kind of celebration around urban regeneration in the city, which was also displacing and excluding the most precarious populations. Thank you so much, Matthew. I'll ask you both to read in a moment so that we can tease out the themes that connect both your books. But Claire, I think I just had maybe one other question before we get to the reading part. You'd mentioned Sadia Hartman. And in your bibliography, you also mention Christina Sharp and other writers. And I was just kind of quite curious about the relationship between Black studies and what bearing that has had on your understanding of poetry, how you approach it, how you write poetry. Yeah, it almost feels so total that it feels hard to, to pull apart. I began writing poetry in a form that feels recognizable to me in a Black Studies PhD program. So a lot of the thought is really kind of inextricable from the questions that were animating the work that I was reading. But I think, you know, maybe this actually connects to what Matthew was saying, but I think of poetry spatially in a lot of ways. There's kind of the easy roots toward thinking about that, that, you know, poetry comes from poesis to build and you know, the stanza is the little room. You know, there are all kinds of spatial metaphors built into the poem. But I think what Black Studies really taught me, in particular poets like June Jordan or Gwendolyn Brooks, who really are thinking about poetics as a way of making a different kind of space, creating the possibilities of living alongside one another in ways that aren't necessarily prescribed from the top, but really come up from the lives that people lived that are really theorized by and in the living is really something that I did learn from Black studies. I think in particular all the time of Gwendolyn Brooks's 1968 book in the Mecca, where she writes about the Mecca flats, uh, an apartment complex that had been demolished 14 years before she wrote the book. And it's really a celebration of the forms of Black life of Black sociality that happened in that space. And I think of the project of the book as a kind of continuity with those forms, even as they were being erased from the landscape of the city. So the possibility of poetry to keep alive forms that are being displaced so that they might be reinscribed in the living and maybe built out in other ways feels like a source of immense possibility to me. Thank you so much. 
Could you talk to us as well about the journey of writing Civil Service, just the journey of this book? Yeah, you know, it feels like the accrual of so many questions that have come from different threads. But I think I started in a form that feels recognizable in 2013, which was in the midst of the Black Lives Matter protests, in the midst of these kinds of circulations of images of tremendous violence that were being passed around supposedly under the logic of kind of evidence of state violence, but there quickly seemed to be something else that was happening there because the evidence of state violence and the evidence of the anti-Black foundations of the state are ample. You know, it seems like if that's the thing that we needed, that already would have happened. So then what does it mean to be creating a kind of sociality around transmitting these really, really horrendous images. So I think in some ways that posed a representational problem because how do you talk about violence in a way that you can also live inside that actually brings us toward forms of care that isn't simply the reproduction of what is, but actually moves us toward something else that might be and that also gets us out of the bind of just reproducing in the name of trying to change because there seems to be a kind of a kind of self-perpetuating logic that wasn't being addressed in a lot of the forms that were circulating. So I think those were the kinds of questions that were animating the book and that I've continued to return to since then. Thank you so much. Matthew, to swing back to you, would you mind reading to us from The Blinded City? Sure. So I'm going to read a passage about Nomsed and Gladlow, who I've already mentioned, and returning to her former home and the, the site of the occupation, which became the center of the Blue Moonlight case. And, and this was the first time I'd actually visited. Nomsed Nosipo went over and stared through the gate, the entrance to what was once their home. The brick walls were patterns of blue and green decay, crossed with angular evening shadows. There were no signs of the urban renewal for which they had been evicted five years previously. Just beyond the gate loomed a large face-brick building, the former carpet factory now webbed with ivy. A few children from the adjacent building played in the inner yard. Nosipo wore a blue Winnie the Pooh sweater and a white scarf, warding off the late spring chill. It was like a home, she said. The time we were staying here, it was like a home. She was talking to me, but it seemed also to herself, as if in astonishment. This was all our place. We were free, we were free, Nomsa repeated, her words a barely detectable undercount. What did it mean to be free in an occupied building, living in darkness, without even water and electricity? What was the sense of nostalgia when the residents of this building were, by their own admission, now living in better, if constrained conditions? The meaning of Nomsa's words could only be deciphered from her own private story of loss and renewal. For even while the conditions at Saratoga had been bad, their removal had precipitated the separation of grandmother and granddaughter. So I'm going to skip ahead a little to the case where Nomsa and her colleagues went into a shelter which actually led to the separation of families, lockouts, and so on. And this led to another major constitutional court case called Gladler. The long-awaited constitutional court judgment for Gladler and another versus City of Johannesburg and others was handed down on 1st of December 2017. 
Nomsalendlaadlo, whose name this case would take and so be marked down in the legal history of South Africa, was dressed for the occasion. She carried a cane of yellow wood and wore a long, large buttoned black coat over a patchwork patterned dress held by a big buckled belt. Over the coat she wore a scarf lined with pinks and purples and of course a black duck on her head. The Constitutional Court rejected the argument that temporary residents could not expect the same rights of dignity, freedom and security as ordinary residents. Justice Nuncorsi Zoliswam Klanta, the Constitutional Court judge who authored the judgment wrote, just because the shelter does not constitute a home in the everyday colloquial sense of the term does not mean the applicants are not entitled to the protection of their fundamental constitutional rights. Judgment found the Kotelani rules to be cruel, condescending and degrading and that they had treated grown people like children. The court ruled that the family separation rules created a vast chasm where there should only be intimacy and love. The judgment spoke to the heart of the case and also to questions of urban renewal more widely. As much as the struggles of Gladla and her neighbours were about law and infrastructure, about policy and politics, they also tended to the more intimate domains of bodies, relationships and feelings. For Nomsa, for example, these issues were not just about a place to shelter, but about a space to care for a granddaughter, to pay tribute to and mourn her own daughter. She had won. Nomsa and I met a week after the judgment outside Ceri's offices in Bramfontein, where she had been meeting with the lawyers and had also attended a meeting of the ICF. As we sat together on a pavement bench outside a fast food restaurant, she smiled and said, we have broken some bones. The irony of the victory was not lost on her. For so many years in the city, she had been searching for a home for herself, for a daughter, and then for a granddaughter. The victory in the Constitutional Court provided some vindication, some recognition for her struggles and suffering, but it still could not provide her with a permanent home. The victory gave Nomsa some satisfaction. It was a victory for her freedom, a basic freedom that centuries of history had denied black South Africans. The freedom to move when and where they wished, and the freedom to rest a while, without someone disturbing, waking or evicting them. It was a place where she could at last take care of Nomi. Thank you so much for that, Matthew. The Blinded City is heartbreaking in parts, but thank you so much for reading that. The question of what is a home in many ways is is quite central to this book. And in an email conversation prior to today, you pulled out these lines from Claire's book. Is this a house or a cell? Who locks you in? And I wanted to ask, what is it about those lines that resonated with you? And perhaps... Afterwards, Claire, could I ask you to respond as well? Well, I think what really struck me about those lines, but also a permeating motif in Claire's book, is this kind of vacillation of, of containment, of containment as a space of, of safety, of, of care, but also how that containment easily switches into forms of violence or imprisonment. And I think that that kind of fine line between what is the boundary that is necessary for a home, but in what way does enforcement of those boundaries also become a form of violence? And Claire, maybe if you could speak to that and, and the way in which the language of the state demarcates certain boundaries also comes with, with that sort of sense of historical violence of who has the right to reside and who falls outside of those boundaries. Thank you for that. I think in some ways that line was an attempt to clarify for myself the terms of containment 
and to think about all of the ways that the state offers possibilities of reform that really are just modes of extending the same forms of violence. So, you know, we see in the U.S. that there are all kinds of projects to supposedly give people without homes homes, but that these are actually just carceral forms, that they have to check in, that they're subject to curfew, that they're subject to all kinds of rules and regulations that people who are renting um, privately are not subject to. And then, of course, there's questions of public housing, which themselves are also carceral forms in a lot of ways in the U.S. in terms of surveillance that people are subjected to. And so, you know, just thinking about those kinds of continuities and the way that what's extended as a form of difference or as a form of improvement is often just a mechanism of reconstitution. So I I wanted to think about that in, in one way. And then I think the other thing I wanted to think about is the ways that we lock ourselves into these forms in certain modes so that even the opposition between private property and public housing is already a false one because these are actually mutually constituted, that private property means that some people will be locked out and that locking ourselves in is is already a form of dispossession, even if we understand it to be a form of possession. So I was just trying to think through all of those threads. Yeah, and I think that resonates very strongly with, with the case of Gladler, where, where space that was meant to be a space of protection from homelessness also became a kind of castle space. Literally, there were biometric fingerprints at the doors and people were being locked out during the, the day. And in fact, what precipitated this major constitutional court case was her granddaughter having a toothache and her having an argument with the guard because the guard wouldn't let them in to rest. And, and I found this very moving, the way that this very small, very intimate pain of the toothache then got amplified to what became a major constitutional court judgment. And so my view is not entirely negative. I think there, there are spaces where the law can be sensitized to everyday pains and suffering, but also other spaces where law that is often meant to protect can also be damaging in some ways. And it intersects with, with precisely this whole kind of matrix of of how the state conceives of what a home is and who has a right to the home. Thank you both. Could I actually take one tiny small step back? Could I ask both of you to speak about the titles of your books? Matthew, you can go first and then Claire, if you wouldn't mind going afterwards and then I'll ask you to read as well. So The Blinded City obviously alludes to the individuals and communities of of visually impaired who are also my guides through the city through these spaces and who opened up that. But it also refers to all forms of kind of partial sightedness, which is the blindness of white South Africans to the violence of the past, the blindness of elites and both economic and political to the kind of violence of, of their actions and so on. And so blindness is always already a metaphor, a metaphor for forms of enclosure, for partial sightedness, for you know the way in which one has a blind on the window. And, and so... 
the idea of the that motif is to explore the the city as a kind of intersection of forms of vision and and pathways but also of kind of multi-layerings of forms of enclosure and often world blindness too thank you matthew Claire? Yeah, I'm actually thinking with what Matthew is saying, and I'm thinking of a line from Solma Sharif's Customs, where she says, only wealth can ruin sight like this. And I actually think this connects to to civil service, the title of my book. There's a kind of common circulating language of, of the language of personal experience or, or lived experience that I think can often take precedence over structural analysis with, with not always a critical relationship between the two. And I think for white people and wealthy people in particular, this is a really limited way of thinking because in so many ways, our violence, the violence that we do is is estranged from us. It's not necessarily white, wealthy people who are pulling the trigger, so to speak, but that there's actually a kind of a kind of buffer in the forms of other people's living between the violence that underwrites the forms of those lives and the violence that's being done. And in certain ways, I was thinking about civil service as the space of that distance. I'm thinking of the poet June Jordan says, in the context of tragedy, all polite behavior is a form of denial. And civil service and kind of calls for civility in the context of the extraordinary violence that comprises the world in which we live is the condition of the ongoingness of that world. So I just wanted to think about that space where violence may not look like the spectacle, but may look like the forms of more or less ordinary living for so many of us. What what does it actually look like there? And how can we begin to understand that space as a space of emergency also? Thank you so much. Matthew, do you want to jump in? Yeah, just and and maybe this is a comment, but also a question to to clear. As white writers, where we've inherited the language of violence, that is both our political and and cultural inheritance. And I don't think one can evade that when writes with a sense of complicity with violence, different forms of violence. Well, particularly as a white South African, and so. I guess part of the the project is also to think, well, how as a white writer does one find a language of of intimacy, a language of the otherwise? How how do I write with sensitivity about working class, precarious black communities with a sense that that I'm complicit in the forms of violence and my family histories have been complicit? And I think that poses a particular question for, for how one uses language and, and what forms of, you know, of beauty or eloquence or anger are, are possible in that language w- without trying to evade the, the fact that one writes from a space of violence. May I just jump in, Claire, just to add to the conversation? I was really struck by something you said in a 2018 interview about the chapbook Bound, and I'm just going to quote it to you and then perhaps you could respond. You said there in the interview, as an American, and I quote, I'm steeped in language that authorizes the occupation of Palestine. And I was just quite curious about whether you could also just expand on that. And Matthew, in your book, you write that white violence still patterned the cityscape. I wondered to myself how it was possible to love a place with so much suffering. And I guess the question of complicity threads through the blinded city. Yeah, I mean, 
all of this resonates, Matthew, what you're saying resonates. And I'm really curious to hear how you hold these questions. Also, in particular, thinking about the ways that I'm steeped in language that authorizes the violence of the occupation of Palestine. I mean, it comes in so many forms. It comes in the forms of, you know, the language of clashes or two-sidedness or, you know, anything that kind of overwrites the vastly discrepant access to resources, to the fact that there is an occupation in the first place. All of that's kind of language that's circulating in mass media all the time. But I think there's also a secondary level, which is maybe even more nefarious, which is just the language of Israel-Palestine, the language of Israel at all, that we're kind of naturalizing in language all the time, this form of an occupying state. So to me, as someone who works primarily in poetry in my own writing, but who also works at a magazine that does news coverage and, and cultural coverage, I'm constantly thinking about what's at stake in, in the fact check, for example, you know, what kind of passes through these forms of truth that are actually about reiterating as natural an order that is in no way natural and that is actually being contested on the ground, first and foremost, by Palestinians who have been resisting the occupation since before 1948. And, you know, through a kind of global network of solidarity, how do you how do you talk about what exists in ways that open and solidarities toward those movements of global resistance. So those are kind of questions that I that I hold and that poetry helps me to think through and keeping language alive and refusing to naturalize my relationship to any linguistic form. Thank you so much. And could we ask you to read lecture on the history of the house? Yes. Lecture on the history of the house. Before the alphabet, there was the house. A proto-Semitic hieroglyphic symbol depicting a house becomes the letter B. Bait, Beit, Beit Lechem, no house, no bread, no book, no baby, no babble. When the temple was written, the destruction of the temple was written. The house scripts its defense. The house writes the fence. In the beginning, there was A, night, B, day, A, tent, B, house, A, the letter scoring the darkness, Q, in the beginning, what was, answer, the beginning, question, what answered the question, silence asked, answer, uh, question, the alphabet, ruin of silence, the only way back through language, language destroying the silence. The shadow language casts is silence. No language, no shadow, no, 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 no. To ruin your knowing in your mouth and dress the ruins with your best tongue. First the temple, then the book leading back to the temple. So the interior is measured, apportioned, 
walled square footage, living space. It is settled then. A house is a home and other embroidered facts. It becomes you, your craft. Bird houses, pin houses, dog houses. Like us, like us, be chirped. Who's the bird now? The problem with liking is the conflation of desire with similarity. We form our mouths to fence we in. We fence our forms to mouth we in. Babble, Inside the house, the family. Inside the family, the house. Inside the tower, the princess does not dream of the tower. Theory is a scream slowed by vintage technology. Touch me, Amira says, touch me. The model of the house is the size of a house. You confuse the conditions that make something possible with the conditions that make something necessary. You don't see thinking as an emergency. You own to prove you cannot be owned. In owning, you sign a contract of possession. The ghost tells the story of the house, but none of the other tenants know how to listen. You lock yourself out. Morning. You lock yourself in. Night. Ownership is a chronic condition. Install a camera to conjugate the strangeness. The house draws your speech like a bath, sink, yard, repair, astroturf, neighbor, clean, handyman, that good, good light. The first bedroom makes you sad. The second bedroom makes a baby. In the corner of the living room, the whole globe spun by children. It's more than the accountant told you it would be. Which came first, the fence or the yard? Ink on a black page. A poem wrestles the ghost with its narrow tongue. A poem touches the hip of a ghost. Inside the dark, a thousand names bloom. No country comes of that night. What is wild? That which cannot be measured. Amira, Amira. Or to produce a thought of the outside from the inside and use it as a tunnel. But you didn't know you were inside. Someone laid the new bricks around you while you slept. You skinned animals and adorned your captivity. Modern architects called the surfaces of their buildings skins. Your skin was light. Your skin was feathers. You dreamt of another. You lit a match. Your child named it sun. House. A. Trained. B. Broken. Inside the house, a man hits you. Then you understand. Your body is the window. Inside, you are already outside. Next door, the soloist domesticates a tune. Poetry is a door without a house. Theory is productive of the known. Poetry is productive of the unknown. How then do you know what is true? These walls, this foundation, in the pages of glossy magazines. The newspapers scratch their heads. 
again, the hunters budgeting. At the end of the day, you return to what is not common. What is desire fulfilled? A, satisfaction. B, rot. The man reaches through his woman, the sound of a thousand plates shattering. A butterfly impaled by a human name tumbles through the light like an angel. Amira sits under a tree, unpitting the names from things. The house is without simile. Inside, everything is alike. She releases the names to the wind. The wind churns the names to pigment, carries the colors off like... Oh, I know what a house is. A house is my knowing. Knowing is faith, absent doubt. When doubt is cleaved from faith, where does it go? A caucus of ghosts tackling. Dead or dead or put on your best sweater. The magic's but the milk's gone bad. There's nothing left but weather. Because you needed a fence to limit your loneliness. Because haunting needed a form. Your dreams become modest. Smooth their skirts. Stand up. Your yard polluted with growth the head in your oven, your most faithful tenant. Let me turn my face toward my life. Let me live inside it forever. A racket of ghosts in a settling structure, the dictator's name in your lover's hand on the I-beams of your house. That is the law. Wow, that's pretty extraordinary. Thank you so much. I've got two questions. One is just maybe for listeners here. Could you talk to us about the Hebrew words at the beginning of the poem and their significance and also about the form of the lecture? And then thirdly, I'd like to invite Matthew to also respond. Um, I mean, the the words at the beginning kind of trace the Hebrew letter bet, which is, uh, bet, which is the, first le- the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the first letter of the Torah the first kind of aspirated or or pronounced letter, I guess, in the alphabet, because the first letter is silent. So people often talk about um, the the first letter is kind of the inhale that happened before God created the world. So I was thinking about kind of the question of origins, the question of not, not in a linear sense, but going back to a space which really is the kind of condition of possibility, which just reminds me that things don't have to be as they are, that the forms of our present aren't inevitable. The particular words are, so the letter, the house, which kind of comes from the symbol of the letter that was used to mean a kind of dwelling. And then Bethlehem, house of bread, you know, which also is the city, Bethlehem in Palestine, the occupied West Bank. So just just kind of thinking about or wanting to call all of those histories into into the space early in the poem. So there are four lectures throughout civil service, and those are really spaces where I wanted to think about the kind of forms that bind the social. So there's lecture on time, lecture on the history of the house, lecture on loneliness, and lecture on confessional poetry. And that's where the kind of syntax starts to come apart and 
the poems are really asking the reader to fill in the meaning or to do a lot of work to think about the meaning that we're making together. And I was interested in the form of the lecture because it's often, you know, I think of a lecture as a kind of didactic form where someone stands behind a lectern at the head of a room and delivers a kind of set of thoughts. But I couldn't get the etymology or the sense that there was a kind of reading that was jostling inside inside that form. And the book really is interested in the possibility of readers to to kind of collaboratively make meaning with the text and to revise the meaning that's being set out. So the lectures are spaces where I wanted to make the possibilities of that revision that the idea that meaning is something that we do and redo together evident thank you so yeah i mean i just think it's an extraordinary poem and really wonderful to hear you read it claire the the tonalities and the kind of songs it it gives it a whole another resonance so thank you i think the there was one line which which really resonated with me and also my work, which is the ghost tells the story of the house, but none of the other tenants know how to listen. And and what I found in my own research in, you know, these dark buildings was the pervasiveness of of ghost stories, ghosts around those who had died in xenophobic violence, ghosts around those who had died of HIV, who had died in fires, and and how the ghost story itself becomes a form of collective memory. The, the, the retelling is of ghost stories is a way to retell forms of trauma and, and forms of erasure. And, and so, so that really resonated strongly. And I think Bungani, it also, I think, connects a lot with your work and our ghost for one's people, Bongani's wonderfully curated collection on, on grief and, and haunting. Thank you so much for that and that lovely thought about ghost stories as a form of memory. I wanted to ask you both about your relationship to the visual. Claire, the civil service has also these geometric shapes. And Matthew, your book also has photographs. And just was curious about the relationship between text and image. Maybe you can comment on that. But two questions I can't leave without asking. One, Matthew, it will be impossible to speak about the blinded city without talking about xenophobia and migration which is a big part of this book. And I'm going to use one of Claire's lines as a kind of jumping off point to invite you to respond. Do you believe in the nation? Have you ever loved an alien? Who represents you in what state? And I just want to invite you to respond in relation to the people that populate the blinded city. Well, I think that there's the kind of recurrence of xenophobic violence, which is in the book, but also has, you know, post the book in, in Johannesburg now, you know, uh, Claire, there's a group called Operation Dadulo who are going around threatening migrants with unlawful eviction. The state is fostering a highly xenophobic rhetoric and, and you know, it's very unsettling. And as I try to trace in the book, Many of inner city residents, including undocumented migrants, are living in the city because life has become impossible in spaces like Zimbabwe, because of drought, because of political persecution. And yet the language of the state, and I think this connects 
to Claire's work, the language of the state is the language of the sentence. It erases those life stories. It's like, are you documented or undocumented? You know, and, and that language has a violence to it because the language of classifying groups of people as undocumented or as foreigners has a, has a particular manifestation, often in police raids, deportation raids, a whole system of violence which that language legitimates. And part of the idea, and again, I think this speaks to how one uses language as a resistance to that language of the state, is, is by tracing these histories, by tracing these stories that resist the simplification of that language of the state, which classifies a whole lot of people as subject to deportation or subject to life which is unlivable. And so I'd be interested also in, in Claire, because these themes also seem to, to, to permeate you know, your work, how you think about that, how you think about writing in relationship to, to the way in which the state constitutes certain frontiers, both literal frontiers, but also frontiers in language. Thank you, Matthew. I'll build on your question. Clear to go back to another interview of yours, one of the things that you said is, I think there can be something that feels almost frivolous about writing in the context of everything that we're facing. And earlier in our conversation, you were talking very earlier on, you were talking about the challenge of representation. And one of the things that you do in civil service is that characters that populate the book are nameless, or rather they are identified by their bureaucratic professions, the curator, the archivist, the dictator, the censor, ETC. Could I ask you just to speak about that and also the question that Matthew asked? Yeah, I'm, I'm holding what Matthew said about the ways that the state constitutes frontiers through language. And I think an attention to that is really in so many ways the animating impulse behind what keeps me returning to poems in the first place. I mean, Bongani, you mentioned that I said it can feel frivolous to to write in, in the context of the world that we're living in. But the second part of that answer was that I returned to poets like Dion Brand, I think I was speaking about in particular there, who remind me that that's actually a vital site of struggle also because so much of state violence and also extrajudicial violence takes place through naturalizing certain forms in language you know as Matthew was mentioning the idea of the documented or the undocumented and how that collapses all of these questions about who deserves a livable life that those kinds of forms are naturalized through language and through through the document actually through the idea of the document itself and you know I think about Ann Bauckham's work on the transatlantic slave trade he traces so much of the violence of you know he, he's looking in particular at the Zong the ship where enslaved Africans were thrown overboard in exchange for insurance money, but he traces the violence of that moment to the work of petty clerks in Britain who did the work of making a meaning in language, making an equivalence in language between parts of the body and capital, and that actually so many of these structures are worked out in language, naturalized in language, authorized in language means that this is a site that we can't 
seed to agents of that violence that we need to all stay attentive to it and to keep reworking what might happen there. Thank you so much. Do you mind speaking about the characters? Yeah, I've, I've been thinking about them actually as as figures more than characters. So as kind of coordinates or configurations of social power, it felt important to me that they were named for occupations to signal that they are occupying a particular social space, but also that they were roles that if a given person wasn't taking up, that that role is still available to be filled according to the social coordinates that exist in the world now. I mean, it's an open question, the relationship between the figures in this book and and the figures in the world. I hope there's a time when it feels like a relic, but it felt important to me that the question between the question about the relationship between those configurations of power and the world as it exists is an open question that's worked out in the living and not in the poem. Thank you so much, Matthew and Claire. The conversation could have kept going and going. Thank you again for such a such an incredible conversation and for two incredible books and all the best to both of you with your work. Thank you so much. It's Yeah, it's really beautiful to be in conversation with both of you. Thank you, Bongani, and thank you, Claire. As you know, each episode of The Empty Chair is dedicated to a writer in prison or a writer who has been subjected to some form of abuse. This episode stands in solidarity with Parhat Tosun, a Uyghur author who has forcibly disappeared in Xinjiang in 2018. So I've selected a poem by Mongani Walisaroti, who is one of Johannesburg's greatest poets, greatest writers, and to himself was, in 1969, put into solitary confinement for nine months. And the poem I've selected is called When Lights Go Out, which was in the mid-70s dedicated to his comrades that were in prison and written to those in prison. So I've selected this poem to read by Siroti. When Lights Go Out... It is with the shadows of night, where the sun comes and goes, the moon comes and goes, that we ask in weary voices, which fall into the depth of the gulf. How does it feel to be you, watching and waiting, to feel the heavy weight of every minute come followed by another, and nothing, when everything written in blood says nothing, but how we could wake up tomorrow and build a day. Your eyelids shut if they ever do, and the memories of those you knew flood behind the darkness of closed eyelids, spiraling into patterns of pain, and you alone know that once there were hopes, that once the footsteps of the people sounded on the horizon, and now silence strides across the sky, where the sun sweats, proclaiming a wish to rest. Can we tell you, you the children of a long hour, a long day, a long night, that hope never befriends fools, Yes, time, in absolute eloquence, can erase our faces. Remember Sharpville, in those days violence and disaster were articulate, and now, today, you watch and wait. So one day hope begins to walk again. It whispers about the twisted corpses that we saw sprawled across the street on this knowledgeable earth, the tears, the blood, the memory, and the knowledge which was born by every heavy minute that we carried across a wilderness where there were no paths, 
where screams echoed as if never to stop. It is when there is no hope that hope begins to walk again, yet, like we said, hope never befriends fools. Since we have eyes to see, ears and fingers to touch, only if we know how can we harness time, can you hear the footsteps. Thank you so much, Matthew. I thought I would read just a couple of paragraphs from Mahmoud Darwish's In the Presence of Absence, translated by Sinan Antoun. You are almost you, neither a prisoner nor a free man because prison is density. No one has spent a night in it without spending the whole night rubbing the muscles of freedom, sore from loitering so frequently on sidewalks exposed, naked, and hungry. Here you are embracing it from every side, free and liberated from the burden of proof. How small it is, how simple, and so swift to respond to the agility of a mirage. It is in you, within reach of the hand with which you knock at the walls of the cell. It is in you, borrowing the bird's example in the falling of rain, blowing of winds, the laughter of light upon a forgotten rock, in the pride of a beggar who reprimands his benefactors when they are stingy, in an unequal dialogue with your jailer when you say to him, you, not I, are the loser. He who lives on depriving others of light drowns in the darkness of his own shadow. You will never be free of me unless my freedom is generous to a fault then it would teach you peace and guide you home. You, not I, are afraid of what the cell is doing to me. You who guard my sleep, dream, and a delirium mind with signs. I have the vision, and you have the tower, the heavy keychain, and a gun trained on a ghost. I have sleepiness with its silky touch and essence. You have to stay up watching over me, lest sleepiness take the weapon from your hand before your eye can see it. Dreaming is my profession, while yours is pointless eavesdropping on an unfriendly conversation between my freedom and me. Thank you so much, Claire, and thank you so much, Matthew. Thank you both so much. Thank you both. Thank you to Bongani, Claire, and Matthew for your accuracy erudition and for helping us to think through these urgent socio-political issues with such care. This episode was produced by Andre Burnett. Thanks to our podcast executive producer, Laura Buxbaum, to Penn South Africa board members, Kate Hyman, Yawande Amatozo, and the whole of the board of Penn South Africa, and to our wonderful interns. And thanks too to Amy Bell Malautzi and Jahan jones Rodgowski for their support. Join us again next week for a new episode of Season 5 of The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. If you'd like more information about our work on protecting freedom of expression and free speech and our solidarity with imprisoned rises across the globe, please visit www.pensouthafrica.co.za. This podcast series is funded by a grant from the U.S. Embassy in South Africa to promote open conversations and highlight shared histories. The podcast lineup is determined by Penn South Africa, and the views expressed by our participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the policies of the United States government. Thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.